In the name of Jesus, amen. What we like to do always is get the word of God out in the room and uh, in our eyes and in our hearts. So I'll just read this and you can follow along, please. For the law, Hebrews 10. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies were made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified." But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So to work through that lesson little by little, Did you notice the very first word in 10 verse 1 is that conjunction for, for the law and so forth. But remember, Sherlock, what's that asking us to keep in mind? Oh yeah, and then here. (laughs) Never be content with starting in the middle of a story. So if you see the word for, then you need to turn the pages back to find out what that is referring to. Just like, I suspect at least, don't start two-thirds of the way through the math book or at the end of the experiment. And what is the text looking back to? Well, we go back to 9 verse 26. Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. Wow, what a thing to know. What a thing for God to accomplish and say to us. And look at it in contrast. Uh, For the law can never do what we need it to do. For the sacrifices couldn't do it either. For the worshipers can't do what needs to happen. For it's impossible. So all of this can't have it done, can't get it done, it's impossible language points us back to Christ. 
And so some other words from Paul that remind us of that. For what the law could not do, because it was weak according to the flesh, our flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And by the way, notice what 8 verse 3 begins with, 4. So we look back to 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that looks back even further to this passage, Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That'd be enough to take with us today, but there's more. The passage from Hebrews goes on, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Now, wait a minute. I saw the Indiana Jones movie, I know there's an Ark of the Covenant. I know that it was God who commanded that Ark to be built. And I've read Leviticus, Numbers, and Exodus. And I know, because I read it, that God was the one who told Israel to do this whole, huge, long, endless, sacrificial thing. So does he or doesn't he? And that's a very complicated place to be. God tells you what he wants. But does he? Or doesn't he? Should I do it or stop doing it? How do I know what to make of that? It's interesting that Matthew seized on that question. And it was very important to Matthew, the former tax collector. So important that he repeats twice in his account of Jesus' life, Jesus quoting Hosea. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And on both occasions, it was, it was in the context of Jesus mixing it up, arguing with the Jewish religious leaders about Sabbath, what you may or may not do on the Sabbath, whether the Sabbath is more law or relief from the law. So what is it that God desires? Does he want sacrifices or he doesn't? Does he want mercy and not sacrifices? Well, that has to do with the proper and alien work Luther recognized this and wrote about it also. There is a proper will of God, which is to love according to his nature. There is an alien work of God, which love requires to do those things that are difficult and unpleasant, but necessary. And any parent knows this. This is a reality for us. We love our children. Our proper will toward our children is that they be happy in the fullest sense of the word. But because of the nature of our children, that makes it necessary sometimes for us to bring pain into their lives and hardship and disappointment. That's the alien will. But that's because we live in two natures, a body and a soul. Now, 1 Timothy does remind us of this proper will of God. God desires, uh, the Greek didn't come through, PowerPoint like other internet and electronic devices are antichrist, so <laughs> they do things like this. <laughs> the Greek word fellow, God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Greek has two different words, both translated desire, which is not very helpful in English. Desire means he will have it this way. This is his desire, and, and you see that in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everybody's sins were taken away. You get to see the contrast of these two words for desire in Greek in this one verse in Matthew. 
But Joseph, being a just man and not desiring fellow to put Mary to an open shame, desired Bulamai to divorce her secretly. There's the contrast of these two desires. Joseph not desiring to put Mary to an open shame. That is the will that's proper to Joseph, and he will maintain that will no matter what. But as far as he knows, his only option is Bulamai to divorce her secretly. And as soon as Gabriel comes with God's message about how Mary came to be pregnant, he doesn't have to go that path. He can go ahead with the marriage. And so that brings us forward or back to this God's desire, and his desire is mercy, and you see Paul appeal to that in Romans. Therefore, I beseech you by the mercies of Christ that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, not dead sacrifices, which is your reasonable service. And why does that make sense? Because you have a body to spend. That's why God gave you one. You have a world in creation under God's atonement and under God's wisdom and grace, like any scientist needs a laboratory. How are you going to learn the things you know, need to know if you don't have something to, to learn with, to experience with, to realize what's good and what's bad and why, what's wise and what's foolish, and the consequences of that. So we, we use our human natures, and they will be used one way or another. The question is, what will it mean? You could use your human nature all during your life. You could sacrifice that human nature in the interest of its own appetites and cravings selfishly, and you could undermine other people's lives and well-being in doing so, but what would that have meant? Or you could realize that it's perishing anyway, so what I can do is make that life count. I can spend it in ways that matter, like learning Greek. So what is it that God desires for you? God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And he sacrifices himself so that, as Jesus himself said, you will never see and in another place taste death. And it's so important for us to get our minds around that truth. We talk a lot about death. Our culture fears death and runs from it, even as it embraces it in the choices that it makes. But I want you to see the difference. Death is the absence of a positive relationship. You get to see what that looks like in the crucifixion of Christ. The utter and complete absence of any positive relationship. So much so that the Son of God would cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me? Not that he doesn't know the answer to it, but that's the the weight of that experience. Absence of positive relationship. No ground beneath your feet. No sun in the heavens above you. No rain coming down to refresh you. I was thinking about Shawshank Redemption in that moment. No person to care about you. No person for you to care about. No rest. No awakening. Nothing. No positive relationship. Do any of us dare complain or argue that, yes, that's how bad my life is. The fact is, because Jesus saw and tasted and, and suffered and died that kind of death, no one else ever will or need to. That's a phenomenal thing to know. And that's why we will never make that kind of sacrifice, because it's been done 
once for all. So the text goes on. By that will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus. Look at this language, once for all. And then the contrast again. This repeated sacrifice of ministers can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand, the proper will of God hand forever. So the next chunk of text there punctuates this contrast, that human effort under the law plus dead animals were offered continually and yet could never do what we need to have done for us. God incarnate does it once and it's forever. So why all the sacrifices? God doesn't want them. Why does he command them? Just a little insight into that for this morning. How do you get people to come to grips with the significance of their failures? We are all pretty good at absorbing one another's failures. We say unkind things, and the person we say them to absorbs them to a certain extent. We push and shove and bump, and our wills collide with each other, and we just sort of absorb that and move forward, although we don't like it, and it hurts, and sometimes we're in pain and disappointed But we move on. It's sort of like having insurance that's always taking care of the things that need to be taken care of in your life as if it were all free somehow. So we tend to think we're a lot better than we really are. But if you live in the midst of uh, these tribes of Israel and every day you see animals over and over again killed and the bloodshed and the burning of their bodies over and over and over again. You have to face, why is that happening? Well, that's a little bit like the effect I have, the burden I place on the people in my life when I'm careless with them, and I am careless with them. So without sacrificing the people in our lives, God does sacrifice what's available to him in his nature to say, there is serious and profound consequence to you contradicting God's design. And so the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. So the Holy Spirit bears witness. This is the covenant that I will make with them in those days. That is looking forward to the resolution of it. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So that's a quote from Jeremiah, who was looking forward to the New Testament. Not law, not human effort, not external to the person, not superficial, not pro forma, impossible to fake. This is the testament that God had always been looking forward to, moving toward, putting under our feet, if you will, starting right away with Adam and Eve, enmity between you and the serpent, and repeating it over and over again, that he would send his son, our substitute, and that he would regenerate us in his son's image. So God will put his word within us. What does that look like? It looks like a regenerate soul. It sounds like Ezekiel 36, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a new heart. It looks like Ezekiel 37, where God speaks to the valley of dry bones and reanimates them and recovers them with flesh and, and muscle and skin and heart. It looks like John 3, where God regenerates us from above. It looks like John 6, whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood will never die. It looks like John 15, a vine and a branch, inseparable and so well provided for 
It looks like Philippians 2 verse 5. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in very nature God, did not consider his God had something to cling to nervously or selfishly, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he lowered himself, becoming obedient unto death, lower still, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and we are his. Let's pray.